Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 270. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Kathleen Duffy. And Kathleen, today we're actually re-recording an episode we recorded in the past, a common utterance in our society and deserves many discussions. So we may reference that earlier conversation, which was unfortunately lost in the digital debris of my poor record keeping. But Kathleen, in this rather large topic, there are two things I want to say at the outset. One, that in the prior recording many months ago, I think I was less agitated and aggravated by the phrase and desired a conversation about the nuance and trying to appreciate the mindset and perspective of those who use this phrase commonly after tragedies, typically in our country, after horrific mass shootings or any circumstances in which many American lives are lost. But I'll note that now, recording this in July of 2020, I still want to have that conversation but I also have to open up about my own bias, which is that, especially in COVID, I don't think conversation has stopped, but it feels like more talking is done than action. And that's my perspective. That is a subjective view on a large, multi-billion person world. And so to me, thoughts and prayers feels more aggravating than it did in the past. And also, I'm well aware that you and I are two people in a world of many who use this phrase. And so I do hope we get feedback and I'm prepared for what people will say and am going to do my best to balance respect of others with respect of my own really strong emotions about a lot of this stuff that it's my job to articulate in a clear way and hope for the best, but also be authentic with you, Kathleen, because otherwise I don't think we'll really have much of a fruitful conversation at all. And actually, Kathleen, with that reference to you, my partner in this conversation, I have been particularly eager to hear your perspective on this phrase, because though you and I, growing up in Ohio and Massachusetts respectively, were both raised under Catholicism, in recent years, while I've moved away from the church out of my own spiritual beliefs and perspectives, You've also been exploring your religious identity, and to me it feels like a logical entry point into what could otherwise be a vast and nebulous conversation that we will do our best to keep linear and easy enough to follow and digest for our listeners. Like you, I also think it is an especially important time that we re-record this episode, as we are situated here in the midst of the ongoing pandemic and also the ongoing racial injustice and police violence, and the ways that these two crises in our society interact so as to enable or prevent our action. In particular, I've struggled as an individual who wants to be on the streets supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, but who has family members who are immunocompromised and suppressed and can't take that risk for the sake of their health and safety. And while, of course, I, like many others, I'm taking the time to donate my material resources, to sign petitions, to call representatives and do all I can to educate myself. There's a degree of processing that has been extremely difficult for me in this time of isolation. And where I've found the most solace and the greatest amount of growth for me and my relationship to the Black Lives Matter movement and my position as a white woman who harbors implicit racism is through religious ceremony through the thoughts and prayers I'm having in my room each night formally, through the services I conduct alone, and that I then carry with me throughout my days. As you alluded to, while raised Catholic and still identify with my Catholicism to varying degrees, 
The past three years, I began practicing with a Soto Zen Buddhist Sangha, and now prepare to take formal steps to convert to this religious practice. Recently, following the news and greater media coverage of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the priest who leads my Sangha initiated a 49-day memorial service to be completed by each practitioner every evening in honor and remembrance of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. The beginning and ending of the service is marked by three bows, but these aren't just half bows, they're full prostrations to the ground, in which you place your forehead on the ground and lift your hands up, raising the ones you honor above your own head. And this physical act of remembering, of processing, of implicating myself in relationship with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd has been an incredibly moving one lifting them above my head in a way that works to remind me of my unique somatic positioning as a white person, in remembering this body, in remembering this whiteness in such a way that I can take responsibility for it. And following these first three prostrations, we continue with various chants followed by a dedication, dedicating the merit, the aspirations of those chants, to George Floyd, to Breonna Taylor, and also to all beings suffering under the weight of racism in America and reminding ourselves that we're included in that, that we are suffering too, as oppressors deluded by racism in ways that we have never even thought to imagine, but have to, if we ever want anything to change, if we ever want there to be real liberation. And I think the reason that this has been so important to me throughout my practice of trying to understand systemic racism and my relation to it while stuck in my room because of quarantine is that I'm bringing the lives of two real people into my own, into the innermost room of my heart and the most intimate space so that I can allow myself to truly be changed by them in a way that isn't overly academic, that allows that distance between myself as someone who's studying and the real lives that are on the line. And this is precisely where I find the value of thoughts and prayers, that thoughts and prayers in its purest form should be a real intimate, vulnerable act of bearing your soul and bearing your soul to yourself studying the history of your actions and their repercussions. But, unfortunately, I think that's rarely how this phrase is invoked. Too far often, it's employed by conservative politicians using this phrase to appease their constituents, often primarily a demographic consisting of white, conservative Christian evangelicals. And I'm cynical about it. I don't believe they're actually thinking and actually praying about these people. I don't believe they're actually thinking about how they relate to the people who are suffering under our systems each and every day, but I hope and believe that it can be this, that it can be an act of resistance. But like Christianity itself in particular, this phrase has been appropriated to justify inaction and apathy under the guise of something else. For me, it's really valuable to hear someone else capture a lot of my feelings. I think what frustrates me, and I suspect far more articulate and directly affected individuals about this phrase, is that it does feel like inaction. And so I feel myself trying to see the other side. So it's valuable to hear you phrase it that way, because for those who believe in a higher power, I think their immediate response, perhaps even an exasperated and horrified response, would be, it's not inaction. We are deferring to an entity far more capable, far more wise, and of course, far more powerful than ourselves to take that action. And while my Catholic studies are behind me, a part of me feels like one should not solely defer to any higher power, never to presume themselves omnipotent, but also not completely impotent themselves, that I think all of us as individuals are capable 
And I've thought a lot about this phrase in a 21st century context and wrote down in my notes that I think one of the problems is that we are, as we have always been evolutionarily, local entities with near and long-range awareness. And that last part feels decidedly modern. If any of us had to time travel and tell our predecessors, yeah, it's actually possible in a few hundred years to talk to someone hundreds, even thousands of miles away, they'd shout witchcraft or their era's equivalent. And I think it's a problem because I don't know if our hearts and minds truly grasp what it is to receive all of this distant and typically sad information on the news and other information sources, but to be constrained to a local body. And of course, we can do things remotely. Kathleen, you of course listed a variety in terms of the ongoing racial unrest in our country and things that many are trying to do even if they are in parallel situations where they don't feel comfortable being in physical proximity to others these days. That also then leads me to a phrase you used, which evoked a lot of feeling for me, and that is that you referenced this time of isolation. And immediately my mind thought about the world before COVID. And there was then, as I suspect is now, a loneliness epidemic. We may not be physically isolated from one another, but clearly in a societal, maybe for those who are willing to accept this word, spiritual sense, disconnected from one another. And I wonder how many people use phrases like thoughts and prayers when there might be someone suffering from or deeply connected to an issue a few doors down in their apartment building or a few desks over at work. And so I wonder to what extent the sense of disconnection exists within us but isn't necessary or is societally perceived but not actually there. I also recognize, as you and I have a more critical lens on this phrase, that criticism without any optimism or without any alternatives can come across as just cruel and hurtful. And so I've thought a lot about alternative phrases. Are there better ways that this could be articulated? And I would love it if the phrase thoughts and prayers were replaced with plans and actions. To tell someone, I hear your pain, and if there's anything I can do, please let me know. But also, I've thought, because I have the creative capacity to do so, about some things that I can try and would love your thoughts on them. And I recognize that not everyone has the time or energy, and that's where I would say, in perhaps a really radical or blunt perspective, that saying nothing might not be the worst thing. I think this topic is deeply tied to social media and the ways in which we show up in a really demonstrative way online. And I'm not saying that isn't real but it isn't always tangible in the ways we might like it to be. And so where I think there's further difficulty is that it feels somewhat like a leader sending condolences to the family of a deceased soldier. That may be sincere, but it's possible that a lot of parties involved don't actually know one another. And so the condolences feel, at least in my mind, somewhat strange, however polite. And I think in a polite society, you share things like condolences or thoughts and prayers. But to me, and I'm aware of nuance here that I don't mean to overlook, but I don't know that I can capture from my current perspective, in a compassionate society, actions, plural and of varying sizes, are taken or at least prepared for. And Kathleen, it's on that note that I want to emphasize another phrase you used, that there are forces in our lives that enable or prevent our action. And I really love that because it's a reminder that we are in 
a network of chemical signals, of social signals, of our own thoughts, of course. And I think all of us deserve, and to the extent we feel the energy to, move towards systems where we are encouraged to put our best foot forward and to act, even if it is gradually and feels small at first. I think there's a lot of guilt tied to living in such an interconnected but disparate society because we know of others' pain, but they may indeed be thousands of miles away. I think a lot of us could do, myself included, some inward-focused conversation about what our capacity truly is to change others' lives and how we could use our time and energy if we feel it's important to not only listen to, but act on behalf of others. And that's why I really appreciated another remark you made in talking about your experience of prayer for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others, I imagine, that you are allowing yourself to be truly changed by them. For me, that idea is not only really interesting, but I think for what our American culture promotes, potentially iconoclastic. I think with the idea of American pride and nationalism or American exceptionalism, there is such an emphasis on the individual that I think for many, even if they didn't mean it in a hostile or cruel way, their own self-pride, maybe it's ego that clouds their vision, would say, well, I'm not going to let a random person change my life. I know who I am and I know what I value. And I would say, if that's genuine confidence, great. But also, we're all members of society. And I say this knowing I'm currently stating my opinion and deserve feedback for it. And if you're going to live in a society, I think you have to be open to or at least acknowledge that other people are going to have opinions and, very crucially, needs of their own. And it feels at times like we are such a hyper-competitive individualistic nation that the idea of allowing ourselves to be truly changed by others is not just a sacrifice, however temporary, but a true surrender of the self. And I would argue, at least in my perspective, that the strongest people have such a firm sense of self that isn't rigid that they allow others to share feedback, comments, or insights and are able to discern what to take on and what to let pass through them or roll off their back like water. Among the many things I really truly appreciate about what you just said, I think it's incredibly important that you bring up the idea of social media in this conversation and especially using this language of showing up. Your points here resonated with me in a really meaningful way because much of the frustration I feel when I see individuals I know post the comment thoughts and prayers or hear politicians say it, I feel that same anger, that same feeling of what are you really going to do when I see my liberal progressive friends posting 24-hour infographics on their Instagram stories. Images that often leave me questioning if they're really going to do anything about it. When you post the numbers to these representatives, did you actually call them? Did you actually donate to this organization or read the book that's being promoted here? And I feel these because I see it so constantly. It's all that my feed is saturated with right now. And I often wonder if people are just doing it for the sake of optics. We hear the term performative activism thrown around a lot these days, in particular with the use of social media throughout the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think here we find an important point of intersection between the term thoughts and prayers, which we often associate as coming from the Christian right, and these 24-hour posts that we see coming from the left. In both instances, we find ourselves wondering, is this really sincere? Are you really doing anything here? They both serve to signal some kind of work, 
and both of those works done in private, whether that be privately donating or privately carrying someone with you, considering them in your daily life and how that might affect the choices you make. And this, I think, is where we find ourselves responding to another point that you brought up that I think is incredibly important, which is that maybe we should replace the term thoughts and prayers with the phrase plans and actions. And from my point of view, I don't think it's an either or situation. I think that the best approach would be one of contemplation and action. How can we integrate these two worlds to find ourselves doing action that is not only well-planned and informed by statistics and graphics and histories, but that's also been considered in private? One that we look at how we are personally, intimately implicated in the situations and systems at play. Because I truly do believe that change is only sustainable insofar as people are changed just as laws are. That we also need to find a way to recognize injustices in the systems of ourselves as we do in the systems we participate in. Because they're not separate at all. They are so ingrained in one another and that's what makes them so hard to change and to tear apart. And they're both hard. They both require energy. They both require presence and real sincerity. And in a culture where sincerity is looked down upon, where we try to act on reason and ration and level-headedness, maybe we need to bring some emotion here to bring ourselves more fully. And I think that thought and prayer is a great way to start that work. But of course, it's empty if it's not followed by action. And throughout this discussion, one of the primary themes that we see arising is the division between public and private life, another value to which we hold incredibly tightly within our American society. We value our privacy. We value what people can't see. But during this time of quarantine, where we're all alone, we do all that we can to project our lives, to project our actions out to the world. This is where I see another one of the hopeful aspects of thoughts and prayers is letting another person know, I'm going to carry you back to my private life and hold you here with me, even though we can't be together, even though we aren't together, and hold you there where nobody else can see that this isn't for anybody, this isn't for social clout, it's just for you. Once again, I'm cynical insofar as I don't think this is what happens. I hope it is, but I have a hard time believing that. In the same way that when I see these social media posts, I hope that people are really doing these actions, that people are constantly, every single day, working to advocate and speak for Black lives, but I have a hard time believing that people actually are. And at the end of the day, this cynicism I feel directed at both ends of the political spectrum might just be coming from a place of my own fear, my own loneliness, that largely I feel very disconnected from others and imagine that they do too. And that's what's so hard about this conversation. You can't see what people are doing behind closed doors. We've never been able to. And it's only harder now with our very important stay-at-home orders. We don't know what people are doing. And we can't force them to do anything. So for me, at least, I'm going to stick with what I've been doing. I'm going to continue in this practice of thinking and praying and acting, recognizing that my thoughts and actions need each other and that I need both of these things, that the world needs both of these things, and encourage everyone listening to do the same, to venture into thought and prayer, whatever that might mean for you. A practice of thought and prayer that needn't necessarily be to any kind of entity, but a contemplative practice that takes a hard look at yourself, that hopefully will fuel and inspire us into deeper and more sustainable action. And on that note, I don't have much else to say right now. 
as a frustrated and confused person right now, as I'm sure many of you listening are. And so with that, I'll turn this back to you, Kip, to see what thoughts you're left with and what you hope to leave our audience with after listening. Well, I have two thoughts that actually branch from things you said. One is that you're right, we don't know what people are doing behind closed doors. And I think the antidote or the solution to that, whatever term you'd like to use, is trust. I think a lot of trust in our country and perhaps everywhere has broken down or is breaking down. As the world becomes more complex, I think communities become necessarily more diverse. And we have to engage in more empathy to appreciate that people who don't look, pray, eat, speak, or think like us are just as human, and that our instinctive or tribal distrust of them isn't always, and I would hope, maybe idealistically, is rarely warranted, and that trust is really key here. Perhaps social media has proliferated from our nation, because where we could trust that you had X or Y experience over the weekend, we don't really, and so we need you to prove it with photos, video, and or various statuses claiming your participation. And so I think that's an undercurrent to consider. I also really resonated with your question of those who post the various numbers of representatives and did you call? Because it led to an analogy I was thinking of in preparing for this episode, that in a world where we can text anyone, and indeed can now text various companies and receive text updates, who do we choose to call? Now, I know various people listening and various late-night hosts have roasted the idea of calling someone on the telephone for ages now, ever since other, less vulnerable, means of communication have emerged. But in the same way that I would champion trust here, I would also champion vulnerability in any healthy society or relationship. I'm not saying you have to cry as if you're on your therapist's couch, but I think opening up is really key. There are a lot of ways in which we could do it, and in our current society, I think a lot of ways in which we, and I put myself in that category, don't do it. And I reference texting versus calling because you could pretty easily copy and paste a lot of text to a lot of people. But at least within a cohesive framework, you can only really call one or two, maybe three people at a time before conversations become hard to track. And I reference that because in my mind, you can't act in a way that affects billions of lives maybe even millions or hundreds of thousands. Perhaps you can affect thousands of lives with your actions, and maybe even hundreds. But if all of us in our society felt the responsibility or duty to help maybe a few or tens of people, well, then our society would be, I think, pretty covered with a ton of compassion and consideration. And there are obviously a myriad of ways in which we practice or show compassion, and I suspect that might be a common criticism of this conversation. But as I think is an evocative problem in our society today, a lot of us, when met with expressions of pain, seek reasons that that pain isn't real or is amplified or isn't there at all. And I just don't think that disproving is how you meet a really powerful and expressed feeling from another person. And I'd like to close with an anonymous nod to an individual I've really come to respect in recent months. I've spent a lot of time in a certain community here in Boston, socially distancing and outside, and I've gotten to know an individual who is a public servant, but I will leave it at that to keep his identity well protected. 
And while he's been kind to me in various conversations and has listened to thoughts I've had, and he's also shared some of his own, he has also informed me recently that he's a man of faith and before the end of a recent conversation, asked if he could pray for anything in my life. And I certainly appreciated that moment because it was in person, in a world where a lot of us are interacting digitally, but I also appreciated it because I've seen him on the job. And so I have personal evidence that he's not just locked in an ivory tower of contemplation that has no real-world analog. I know that he does things very actively to help our society, and so to me, that helps paint a more well-rounded picture of his identity as a person of faith. It doesn't feel in that case like he's deferring all of his possible action to a higher power, but things he can't control to a higher power. And I think that's at the root of my optimism in him and my frustration with others, that I think there's a balance to be found. And perhaps uncomfortable conversations, knowing full well I might be on the receiving end of them, amongst all of us. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and in this case, two voices that have largely similar perspectives on this rather ubiquitous phrase. So we'd love to hear from you however you feel about this phrase, and even if you've used it yourself. If you have any thoughts, opinions, or feelings of any kind, please do reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can even email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if this conversation made you think, if you enjoyed it in any way, please consider subscribing to the show and telling a friend about us. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off. And I'm Kathleen Duffy. Go in peace and conversation. <laughs>